Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Foran. This week's episode is maybe a little bit niche in that it will be particularly relevant, if not entirely only relevant, to parents of toddlers. Um, I do think, having listened back to the conversation, there's an awful lot of what we talk about here that would apply to ourselves as adults. So if you're just a regular listener, please do stick around. You will definitely get something from this. If you are someone like me going through the toddler years with a very sensitive, very spirited toddler, I will use that word because that sounds a little bit nicer than some of the ways I want to describe them sometimes, this is the episode for you. So I'm joined here by Dr. Ethan Cross. He's been on the podcast before, New York Times bestselling author, so incredibly accomplished, all kinds of accolades and letters after his name. He's a neuroscientist, he's a psychologist. And here I'm asking him specifically about how to regulate myself so that I can help regulate my child. So I find that I'm experiencing a lot of anxiety around my son's ups and downs and I'm mirroring a lot of his emotions when really I'm supposed to be the calm and collected adult. I find it very hard to do. And also when my son does calm down after an epic meltdown, I'm left reeling with the anxiety of it. Then there's the anxiety around, you know, are you doing the right thing? Are you responding in the right way? Um, The fear that we're going to somehow mess up our kids, which I think once you become a parent, we all have that fear. So I ask Ethan here about everything. He's the author of Chatter, which is still widely available. It's phenomenal. It's worth reading or listening to however you consume your books. Um, And yeah, I hope you find this useful. Thank you as always for joining me on what can so often become like my therapy sessions in podcast form. Always fun to be here, Caroline. Thanks for having me back. Massive congratulations on the success of Chatter. So that was just coming out the last time we spoke. Since then, it has taken the world by storm and you have become even more one of the leading experts on controlling the conscious mind and the significance of our self-talk. And like, I don't think enough people can read it. You know, it's just so important that we understand the power of our self-talk. I wanted to have you back And I'm so delighted that you agreed to because I was thinking about an anxiety that I've been dealing with a lot at the moment. And I know I'm not alone. This is one for parents. And it's how to cope or function with a toddler who obviously cannot regulate themselves. Their brain is not developed in such a way to do that yet. Obviously, we know that they can't. But we're supposed to be, you know, calm, cool and collected, regulated parents And I know that I can't, a de-escalated adult can't de-escalate a child. 
But I find I get so caught up in, in mirroring his emotions. And when he has a meltdown or a tantrum, being able to bring myself back to center and be regulated enough to respond appropriately to him so that it doesn't become bigger for him, but also so that it doesn't just completely drain me and stress me out. I figured who better to talk to about this than you, who is so, it's your your life's work is understanding how to regulate our emotions. And to boot, I have got two kids, so uh, I can speak to it from both angles. And Amazing. we've done some research on kids. Um, well, I mean, the first thing I would say, Caroline, is the the experience that you just described in the abstract, which I'm guessing that you've lived through that quite a number of currently, times. Currently. Currently. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I've got a, a, a now, geez, that as soon as I get the ages of my daughters down, they go ahead and change. And then I get really oh. paranoid that I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> But uh, eight and 12, and we still, I, you know, th- their emotion regulation neural circuitry is developing. They've got tools. I talk about them. Guess what? They still have tantrums at times, and it yeah. can bring me down as well. So, so the phenomenon you're describing, I think, is a really familiar one to parents. And I think the first thing you want to be aware of is that step one is knowing how to regulate yourself. Right. So when 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 your your child is acting out, it's really helpful to have tools that you can turn to to keep yourself um, keep yourself cool, calm, and collected. And there are lots of things that we can we can do in those circumstances. I think number one, just normalizing the situation, mm-hmm. as as I'm trying to do for you right now in this first part of the conversation. There is real power in knowing that. As awful as what you are experiencing is, your kid is, you know, screaming their head off in the middle of a restaurant and everyone's looking at you, recognizing that, you know what, all the people in this restaurant, if they've had kids, they've gone through something similar before. We take comfort in knowing that we are not unique in our capacity to experience these kinds of interactions with our kids. And so just reminding yourself of that at a very conscious level, it's very easy to lose sight of that when we're in the thick of things. That in and of itself, I think, can be anxiolytic. It can turn down the the thermostat on how bad you're feeling. I mean, do do you ever do that for yourself when you find yourself, is it your son? Yeah, my son. So he's two years old and I feel like the clock turned you know, he turned two and he just grew a pair of horns out of his head. And I know that he's exactly as he should be. And I feel like he might be on the extreme end of the the tantrums and meltdowns and he's very smart. But I realized that like all the coping skills I had for myself have kind of temporarily gone out the window because I don't feel like I arrived into parenthood equipped to handle basically like a live grenade of emotions. Um, We get when we're having a baby, you know, as parents, we're so focused on the birth, we're so focused on the baby, how to take care of the baby. And so little of it comes back on ourselves and how to parent ourselves. Like we don't know, like, I think I'm starting to see people talk about like different parenting styles. And I'm like, um, I don't know that I've picked a style or an approach. It's just, I'm just trying to get through the day. So where I thought, I mean, I was definitely owning it with myself. When my child comes into the picture, it kind of unravels for me. Um, And something I wanted to ask you was, you know, like we talk about wanting to be like the best approach is to be calm in the moment and collected and, and, you know, 
they're not going to respond well to you if you're like, oh my God, what's going on? But I'm curious from like a nature perspective back in the day, are we not hardwired that if we see our own offspring, our own babies upset, that our own threat response has to turn on because we're like, well, what's going on? Why is, is there something in the vicinity that's going to harm my baby? Even though your logical brain knows this is just a, an irrational meltdown, they're fine. Are we like, if we're trying to be so calm and collected, are we actually trying to suppress a very natural reaction to have our stress response triggered in those moments? Because I just feel like right now, like when we're in the thick of it, my stress response is just firing off all day long. It's almost like I'm mirroring his emotions and then I'm anticipating the next one. Yeah. Well, we, we're certainly um, we're certainly predisposed to respond to cues of distress um, in other people in general, but certainly okay. in the people we love. So seeing your child be um, in pain and emotional pain you know, if you, if you have a, if you are empathic, which many parents are, um, there are emotional reactions that you then experience in turn, you do tend to, to, to experience what they're feeling, but the degree to which that is fixed and unchangeable, um, that's something that I, I would not say is the case. Um, so you can actually modify how you respond to your child and there are lots of ways to do that. So maybe we should break down what some of those little micro interventions are for both you and for your child. Um, let's actually start with your kid. So, because I think there the, the prescription is pretty clear. So um, it is true that, uh, is your is your child talking yet? Oh yes, he's so Chatterbox. fluent. I think that is part of the problem is that he can articulate so many things, but is it's like he's vocally ahead of where he should be and his body is still like a baby. <laughs> so yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Um, not funny is wrong adjective <laughs> to use, but but, but um, uh, I, I know what you mean. So kids' ability, so you have the ability to reframe how you're thinking about this, right? You can you can say to yourself, your initial reaction, like, oh my God, my kid is flipping out, but you could reconstruct and say, well, you know what? He doesn't have the ability to regulate his emotions yet because his prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed. Having that awareness may provide you with a sense of calm. It puts things in perspective like, okay, so I'm not going to get mad at him as a result. Let's ride this out. There are, however, ways that you can help neutralize your child's emotion. One thing you could do is, is change the focus of their attention. So there are two strategies here, changing the situation and changing what they're focusing on. So um, if your kid is, is really riled up about something, distract them. So I have, a, I have this Apple watch. I'm not wearing it right now, but I didn't realize this when I, when I bought the Apple watch. I bought it because I wanted to keep track of my steps on the way to work and make sure I was being held physically accountable. It turns out it is a remarkable tool for regulating the emotions of young kids. And I promise you, I'm not on the Apple payroll when I say this. So <laughs> I, I, I have ha an Apple watch and I stopped wearing it. I'm about to go put it back on. <laughs> okay. So here, here's, here's how it works. So if you press that, there's a face that is a Mickey mouse face. And there's uh there are a couple of other like Disney Pixar faces. And so when, when like one of my, um, my niece or my nephew, when they were younger and we're having a, like we're breaking down, I would, I put that face on. If I tap it, you could hear Mickey Mouse say the time. And I go over to my my nephew and I press it and it would go from like, ah, 
ooh, ooh. Because their attention would be diverted away from whatever was bothering them. Maybe it's the frustration of not being able to play with a toy that you've taken away with them. Maybe it's the the the, the pain from a, the physical pain associated with a skinned knee or a finger that get caught in the door, right? Like your attention is, the kid's attention focuses on those things that then drive those negative emotions. If you could pull their attention away from those aspects of their experience that are driving the emotion and put it onto something else like Mickey Mouse mm-hmm. or a peekaboo game or any number of inventive things that you might think about, that can have the, the effect of very powerfully neutralizing the emotional response very, very quickly, uh, if that makes sense. So that's that's yeah. what we might call a change your focus strategy. There's actually some really neat research done um, with my advisor in graduate school. He was a guy named Walter Michelle. Have you ever heard of the marshmallow task? Yes. Okay. I'm, so I know I would fail. <laughs> well, so, so, but there are ways to help you doing better. So Walter devised this marshmallow task for listeners who aren't familiar with it. You you give young children, not too much older than your 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 kid, um, a choice. You present them with two treats. Let's say it's marshmallows or pretzels. And you say, hey, you have a choice. You can have one of these treats whenever you want. And the treats are right in front of them on a desk. But the experimenter then tells the child, uh, I have to leave the room and go clean up this other place. I'll be back in a little while. If you can wait till I get back, you can have both treats. Now you can't have both until I get back. So you have to wait. You could have one whenever you want, but if you wait till I get back, you can get two. The child indicates that they understand the instructions and then the experimenter leaves. And then the question is, how does a child deal with that frustration, those big emotions? Like I want both marshmallows. I want them (laughs) now. Like how does a child deal with that frustration and through lots of experiments Walter and others have figured out different tools that children use to regulate their 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 impulses and desires and it turns out attention is one of them so if you do simple things like you just conceal the marshmallows so you effectively like put a box over them so they're not actually looking at the temptation turns out kids wait much longer they can delay their gratification much, much longer than if they're looking at the marshmallows. So what, what you've done there is you've you've changed their attention. You've removed the thing that is driving the emotion. You can also have pe- these um, these kids change their attention internally by telling them to do things like um, think fun thoughts. Think about like the last time mommy pushed you on the swings. Mm-hmm. So in that case, even though the treats are right in front of them. Their mind is somewhere else. They're thinking about something fun and engaging. That also helps them uh, deal with the temptation. So, so that's a way of of changing the child's focus, and that can be really a, a useful tool with a particularly a young kid for helping them manage their emotions. Changing the situation, the physical situation, that also can be helpful if they're in a context where um, where they're really frustrated. Like put them in another room with fun things for them to engage in. That can help as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel like when I'm calm and it's not happening, I understand like that he's, you know, he kind of gets lost in his emotions. And like, I've tried lots of different tactics. You you get so inventive. And I find that um, 
what's really helpful is to talk about things that happened in the past and that distraction seems to work for him. I'm like, remember when we saw the birdies and we saw this? If I talk about things that are in the future, he's like, he gets more upset because he's like, no, I don't want that. No, I don't, no, no. So that's working for me. Um, But to bring it back to the experience of the parent who's left reeling with the anxiety, what I struggle with, apart from the intense moments of like, oh my God, this is so hard and stressful and I'm like fully in fight or flight mode, trying to help my little man calm down. It's 10 times worse if it's in public. And I, I want to ask you about that as well because mm. the difference and the kind of social implications and the social anxiety that goes along with that. But one thing I would love to ask you about that I really struggle with, and this is my husband kind of pointed this out to me. It was like, we he had a really bad meltdown. Um, I kind of distinguish between a tantrum and a meltdown. I feel like a tantrum how I would think of it is he, the, he, there's a desired outcome. Like he wanted the cookie and he didn't get it or he didn't want me to sit there and I sat there. And that's like, you know, and then I can pretty quickly resolve that. A meltdown, I feel, is just he he gets so lost. He, something triggers him. Sets him off. It's probably a combination of being hungry and tired or being not aware that something was going to happen. Like if he's not in the know of what's going to happen, it can trigger him. Um, and he gets so upset and almost like just so he starts it's almost like nearly like hyperventilating and I know when that happens I'm like I've lost him and he almost needs to just go through it and come out the other side and I need to just be there and say like I'm here my mommy loves you try some gentle distraction things um you know I've just I feel like it's you go so much into like a, a primal caring response of like I need to help him ride this out sometimes I obviously get frustrated and I'm like, oh my God, would you just not? And that's another question I'll ask you. But when you cue your husband. Yes. <laughs> so he, he would go through the other day, he went through one of these meltdowns. That's like, I mean, next level, like everyone's just like, whoa, like stand back. And I got him out of it. He came through it, eventually got him down to sleep. He was completely fine. He'd forgotten that it happened as kids do. He had a great sleep and like, then me and my husband went for a drive because my parents were up and they were able to mind him uh, for a while after he woke up. And like, I was just mute in the car and he's like, are you okay? And I was like, no, like, I was like, I can't handle this. And he was like, Caroline, like he's over it now. Like you need to be able to shake that off. So where I'm really struggling, and I'm sure this is common to a lot of sensitively natured people like me is they they can flip into stress mode and come right out of it. I flip into it and I can't just come right out of it. I'm like left absolutely shook from the experience. How do I learn or what can I say to myself to almost put each tough moment in the rearview mirror as soon as it's gone? Well, I think um, number one, reminding yourself that this is totally normal for kids to go through those kinds of tantrums. I have yet to meet a family that has not again, normalizing it is is really useful. Uh, let's talk about time because I think time here can be can be used to your benefit. It's a, it's a hidden resource freely available that we don't always know how to use to our benefit. So when I mean when I'm talking about time is this, all emotions have a time course that is they're triggered, they peak, and then they eventually do end. Even if you think about some of your most extreme emotional reactions, eventually they have come down. Reminding yourself of this is really useful for two reasons when thinking about how to manage ourselves with our kids. Number one, remind yourself that when your kid is experiencing a tantrum, 
let it letting it run its course, the child will eventually return to to normal. Your has your son ever not returned to normal? No. And I think no. it's so funny because in the moment you're like, oh my God, what if this is the one that keeps him stuck there forever? That's right. Because we zoom in when we're experiencing stress on the worst case scenarios yeah. and we start thinking things that are out of touch often with reality. And this is mm-hmm. ha- happens to all of us when we get stuck experiencing that kind of mental chatter, stress reaction, reminding yourself in that instance, it's normal and eventually like the best thing I could do right now is just let this run its course. He will burn out and then he'll be your, your, your lovable little guy, your little man who will snuggle with you. And like, that is a strategy you can implement now for your, with your kid, letting that run its course. Right. The other thing you can do is, um, for yourself, when you find yourself experiencing despair, one thing you can do is remind yourself, like, how am I going to feel about this tomorrow? or next week, or next year, you will feel better as you've always recovered. Now, when we're in the midst of the stress response, we again lose sight of the fact that we ourselves do recover. We call this temporal distancing. So it's essentially you get in the mental time travel mission. You think, how am I going to feel about this two weeks from now, right? When we're on to something else. What that mental exercise does is it makes it clear that as awful as this is right now, it's going to be over eventually. And that gives you hope. And hope is a powerful antidote to a stress response. So that's one thing you could do in the moment. Another thing you can do is try to give yourself advice like you would give advice to one of your best friends. Mm -hmm. What would you say to your, your, your best girlfriend who is dealing with a similar situation? Would you say to her the things that you are saying to yourself when you're in that backseat of the car? and thinking about the worst case scenarios, or would you say something else? I mean, absolutely. We are so harsh and critical of ourselves. And it's, I guess, when you're talking to someone else, they're in the stress response, you're not. So you're you're able to reason and say, I can see that the time of what you're going through will, will come to a close. But as you say, when you're in it, you're so fully of the belief that this is not a phase. This is where it's going to be. This You're stuck in forever land. So one 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 little trick that we find is useful for helping break people out of that foreverland mindset is to actually have people talk to themselves silently in their head using their own name. And what that does is it essentially activates the 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 brain machinery for thinking about other people. Okay. So as you're saying when you were stuck in the stress response like it can be hard to 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 activate these different tools. Well, when you use your name, we, we typically use names when we think about or refer to other people. So when I think, Ethan, you're going to feel, how are you going to feel about this next week? It's, it's as though I'm giving advice to someone else. It's like, a, it's, a, it's like a healthy splitting of the mind. It gets you to perspective take in ways that can be really useful. The other thing you can do ahead of time is prepare for how you're going to respond when this happens. I think this is a really important skill mm-hmm. to to develop. We call we call this developing what well, an implementation intention. That's like a very fancy phrase for coming up with a simple if then plan. If I find myself going down the the tunnel of despair when my kid is is screaming his head off in the restaurant, then I'm going to do two things. I'm going to imagine how I'm going to feel about this a week from now, and I'm going to give myself advice like I would someone else. You rehearse that plan ahead of time, and it doesn't take a lot of effort, 
But what you're trying to do is establish a connection, a link between if this thing happens, then I'm going to do this thing. So when you're in that situation, you activate these tools without having to even think about them. That Mm -hmm. becomes your default response. And when you get to that point, which is not hard to get to, that makes coping much, much more effective. And so I'll give you an example um, personally. So every few weeks, three to four weeks, I will wake up with, um, with, with, a, with chatter. Like, I don't know why it happens. It always happens at 2 a.m. And it always follows a particular course. Something bad happens at work. Next thing I know, I lose my job. Then it's my family. Then I'm in jail. And then I'm dead. Like really not fun train of thinking. Like oh, always the same way. Every time, 2 a.m., not fun. I'm wide awake. I've got a specific go-to set of tools that I use. And I actually use the tools I just described to you. I think about, Ethan, I use my name. How are you going to feel about this tomorrow morning? No matter how bad the stress is in the middle of the night, I always feel better about it the next day. Always. When is I that... Have- before you continue, is that because yeah. at night our prefrontal cortex is kind of offline? That's right. You're, 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 it's getting cleaned by the sanitation department and um, it is not fully operational. That's not to so be you, trusted. <laughs> that's not to be trusted. So you lack the same resources that you do when you're fully awake and energized. And just reminding myself of that and, and using my name to help me do it. It's like I'm talking to my friend, you know, hey, you know, Laura, here's how you're going to feel about this tomorrow. You're, it's not going to bug you. That's my wife, who's also my friend. <laughs> um, that, that really, yeah, I, I go back to bed. Whereas before when I didn't have that plan, I would just flounder, right? I, I'd put on the Netflix and I'd still think about it. Or I'd go downstairs and start to work and that wouldn't be helpful. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to stop and try to figure out, hey, what should I do now? Because this isn't working. I have a go-to plan. And, and that would is something I would encourage um, listeners to, to do. Come up with those if-then yeah. plans. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I just was having a conversation earlier and I kind of put the anxiety I've been feeling lately in a nutshell of like, 
I'm living in a very reactive mind and really that's going to give rise to anxiety because I'm just, you know, dealing with like a whack-a-mole, things popping up here, there and everywhere. Whereas I want to shift from reactive to being proactive. And I think that in itself, which can be applied to like so many different aspects of life is such, it's the ultimate tool for feeling less anxiety because you can decide how you're going to respond in ahead of time. Because what I find, especially with your kids and the volatility and, you know, the the randomness of their little spiraling episodes, it's very hard. You know, people say like this, the space in between like response and stimulus so or stimulus and response. I actually just find it really impractical and unrealistic to expect yourself to carve out that space in the moment. And we're not like, we're not all experts and studies, you know, experts on the brain. So I think it's quite a tall order. But I think what you're saying there makes perfect sense that if you can practice it and decide on how you're going to respond when things are calm and get your brain familiar enough with it, that maybe tapping into that won't be such a huge ask when the time comes. Well, that's exactly the um, the motivation behind the behind the research that went into these specific if-then plans that I just described. The observation is that if if you're in the heat of the moment um, and you don't have these tools, it can it can be really hard for you to access these tools when your your neural resources are all soaked up with the anxiety, right? So so it's hard for you to pivot in the moment if you don't have the plan. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is make it easy for people to break out of the spiraling by having them rehearse ahead of time how they're going to respond. This is what you know, we do in professional sports, right? In in the military where we we simulate all of these different instances. So when an athlete finds themselves, you know, in this particular situation, uh, let's say it's football and, you know, there's a penalty kick and the players know exactly what they're going to do. They don't have to stop and think, oh, where should I stand? They know exactly what to do and who's mm-hmm. kicking the ball. Or in the military, if this kind of situation occurs, like these elite fighting teams know how to respond to that situation. When I'm getting my students ready for high stakes interviews to get academic positions beforehand, we are, we are, we are throwing all sorts of really difficult questions to at them in a safe space to, to get them prepared for how to respond to the, to the questions that might throw them. So we're trying to make their ability to deal with the stress automatic and effective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what these plans have the potential to help everyone do when it comes to their anxiety. You said something very powerful before Caroline. Did I? I was listening I was listening really carefully. <laughs> do you know what it was? You want to guess? No. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. You said that when when you know you, we we become parents and like we have these like little bundles of love, but also giant emotion. And no one gives us a user's manual for how to mm-hmm. deal with them. This idea of not having a user's manual or a blueprint to deal with emotions I, and, and our children, I think it goes beyond just our kids. Uh, it, it pertains to our emotional lives. So we are born into this world with these things called emotions. They take many different forms. They course through all of us in, 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 different, in different varieties. And what I think it's easy to forget is that emotions are tools. They they are they are helpful for us. Even the negative ones are useful. So when you're when you experience a ping of anxiety, when your kid 
um, stubs his toe and is upset, like it's useful that you have that anxious reaction, right? Because you're maybe something is wrong and let me focus in on him. Or if, if someone else gives you a dirty look because you took the parking spot, you know, that they were looking at, um, I may be projecting my own experiences here, <laughs> but you know, it's useful that you experience a little anger because what that does, that emotion prepares you for a potential threat. Maybe I should approach, maybe I should avoid it. So all of our negative emotions are useful in small doses. What makes them toxic is when the emotions get prolonged, when the anger doesn't occur and then cease or the anxiety sticks around. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need the user's manual that no one has given us because we don't just have the capacity to experience emotions. We have this remarkable ability to manage them, but you need to know how to do it. Like my kids don't learn at school about mental time travel and temporal distancing. They don't learn about, well, hey, when you're facing something that is objectively difficult, you could think about that situation in two ways. You could think about it as a threat. This is something I can't handle, as we often do when we're in a difficult situation. Or you can reframe how you're thinking about it and say, you know what? I can manage this. Turns out, whether you frame a problem as a threat or a challenge makes a huge difference in terms mm -hmm. of how you think, feel, and behave. Huge difference. But we're not teaching people how to do this. And that's where I think um, taking the science that explains like how these different tools work, what are they, is so incredibly important. Absolutely. And I think there's a real urgency for it when you become a parent because you feel like you've been thrown in the deep end and maybe you've been coasting along managing your own emotions. Suddenly you're responsible for someone else's emotions um, or at least their safety around their emotions and you're trying to help guide them through. And a lot of the anxiety comes from, I think, in, in my generation, you know, we have so much awareness now of how we can shape our kids. And apart from the stress in the moment of like, OK, he's having he's spiraling. It's also the fear of like, oh my God, what if I respond to this in a way that's really unhelpful? Like, and I would never really get angry at him or anything, but like, you're so conscious that I'm so, anyway, I myself am so aware of like formative experiences for kids, you know, and because I've looked into it and the impact that things happening and the way you're parented and things that can like stick with you for the rest of your life. So not only is the anxiety sort of immediate, it's also like, oh my God, how am I, how am I shaping this person? Um, which, I mean, if you think about it to that extent in the moment can feel like quite overwhelming. Um, one thing I really wanted to ask you about was when people don't have the response that they would like to have had. I mean, I think every parent, while they maybe don't want to admit it, has certainly my friends have and I have said like oh there's been times where you just like would you just eat your fucking dinner or you know and like you know maybe you wouldn't curse them but you're just so frustrated or like the other day it was just one meltdown after another and I'm like I actually started to be like Kaylin like you're making mommy upset like I was almost like shaming him for it now I know that that is in my right frame of mind that is not helpful it's not gonna help anyone I know that's just a disaster but I was so worn out I was so fed up. I felt like I had thrown everything at it. I would, I was doing everything I could and I just kind of lost it really. And I just was, I suddenly was not responding appropriately. Then what happens is even though we get past it and we're fine and we're, you know, cuddly and kissy and he's back to being himself, I am left with this uh, like awful guilt. You're reeling in it of like the chatter that can happen to you then of how you responded. Or for example, 
um, just a couple of weeks ago, I, long story short, we have no childcare and our, we went from having a minder in the home to me quick, very immediately shifting him into going to a minder in that minder's house. And I didn't, I didn't warn him about it beforehand. I didn't think he'd really be aware. And then I just basically dropped him off. She didn't want me to go into the house and he had a fucking nightmare and lost the plot. And like, when I thought about it, I was like, of course he did. You know, he was handed into someone he's never met in a house he's never been in. He didn't know what was happening. He thought he was on his way to the park. Like, and I'm still, I'm still punishing myself so much for, for that. And that's where I think the chatter as a parent, as a mother, especially can just be on a whole other level. Like maybe we get to a point where we're not so bad at how we talk to ourselves in, in our pre-parent lives. And then you become a parent and it's just this like, dumping of guilt that just never stops that just piles on and you question yourself and you blame yourself so much especially with things like if it happens in public and you mm-hmm. know if some if they have a meltdown in public the the chatter after can be where it really creeps in and sticks around and starts to kind of feed this more like subtle basal basal toxic anxiety that might always just be with you which is just a bit crap yeah uh, well you know for the for the guilt and remorse again you know th- these are these are common human experiences and i think number 1 the fact that you experience some guilt like a little bit just a little i'm not a huge fan of guilt myself but a little bit can be useful because what it can do to us is alert us to reflect on actions that we took that might not have been optimal that maybe we can learn from to improve upon in the future. So it's it's directing our attention to something that is an opportunity for us to, to change and improve. Now, if you think about guilt in those terms, like before I started studying this stuff, I never thought about, I never gave, the only thing I thought about guilt was it feels really bad. And yeah. I, it I just seems like such an unnecessary emotion. Unnecessary. Sometimes. I don't, I don't like it, yeah. but but think about it in these terms. So if you feel guilty about something, ask yourself, um, well, what can I learn from this situation that I can improve on to be a better mom um, mm-hmm. in the future? You know, I think that is like probably makes good sense that you experience guilt in the situation that you did. And you can learn from that to get better. And I think we're all trying to master this thing we call life. And, um, and guilt is a tool to help us do that. So what I'm doing there is I'm reframing how we're experiencing this negative emotion. We're viewing this as an opportunity to grow. If you want to live a life free of any guilt, like I'm not putting money on your capacity to do that, Caroline. And that's not because I know something very intimate about your life. It's because I know something about human beings. These are fundamental emotional experiences that we all possess. They are part and parcel of who we are. So trying to rid yourself of them or feeling bad because we feel these different emotions, I don't think that that is productive. Mm-hmm. I think what is more productive is to recognize, hey, these different emotions, they're, they're providing us with information about how we're living our life. And let's let's use that information, even if it doesn't make us feel that good in the moment, to live better lives. And so recognizing that guilt is an opportunity to improve, um, reminding yourself, you know, mental time travel, temporal, hey, how are you going to feel about this a week, a month, a year from now? Reminding yourself to, to what would you say to your buddy who is experiencing guilt over how she did or didn't 
engage with her kid in the restaurant when they were having a tantrum. Like, what are you going to say to them? You're going to say, you know, you should feel guilty. You're a piece of shit, mom. Like, <laughs> you ever say that to one of your friends? Never, <laughs> never. But you Please. might have said that to yourself. Let me let, let me share something to you. In some of our studies, we actually ask people to tell us, you know, what what's what's actually streaming through your head when you experience X, Y, and Z. First of all, what's really interesting is sometimes people are um, ashamed to even put on paper anonymously what they're thinking about. And then if you look at the content of their thoughts, um, it's it can be really, really dark. And, and we're not talking about clinical populations here. We're talking about just run-of-the-mill, what we'd call unselected samples, just people we just advertise our study to and they just sign up. And um, it's it's part of the human experience to to have those those dark, depressogenic, anxiolytic those you know thoughts that drive these different emotional responses at times. But but recognizing that you know you have choice in terms of how you engage with those thoughts, I think can be really empowering. Mm, absolutely, yeah. It's the choice and the not attaching to them, but but I think accepting that they're going to rise up for you. Like if you're the kind of person like me, who's a bit of a worrier and overthinker, like I think I've kind of gotten to the point where I've stopped trying to not be like that because it's just my nature. I am going to think maybe a little bit more than the person next to me about things or going to ruminate or worry a bit more, or jump to the worst case scenario. And I kind of just let it happen for the most part and then say, well, that's just my nature and it's okay. I don't have to follow it to its conclusion, you know? And I, I think that is such a, a sophisticated um attitude to maintain towards your emotions. And and it's an attitude that, you know, it's it, that so here's a really powerful distinction for me that I've used in my own life and 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 with others too. Um I don't know why I will experience a certain feeling or thought or belief randomly as I'm walking to work each day. Like sometimes stuff pops into my head like, guess what? I'm not sharing with anyone what I'm thinking or feeling right now. I'm not going to tell you, and I don't know where that thought or feeling is coming from, but I don't, when that happens, I recognize that I don't have control over the bubbling up process, but what I do have a lot of control over is how I engage with those thoughts and feelings once they're activated. And, and, and that's really my playground as a human being, right? There are all these different ways I can, I can shift my thoughts and feelings. And I could do that from, engaging my senses, right? Seeking out different sensory experiences to changing my attention, shifting it around to focus on other things, to changing the way I think about my circumstances, thinking about it as a challenge rather than a threat. I can seek out support from other people who are really skillful advisors. They know how to help me work through my feelings. I can have experiences in this world. I can change my environment in ways that help me. Lots and lots of things I can do to change the way I'm thinking once that thought is activated. But mm-hmm. but I don't I don't fret over over the initial popping up in my head of that thought and feeling. And and that's really also empowering to know yeah. that I don't have to beat myself up for that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's so empowering because I think we're all we're always so focused on trying to not have those thoughts pop up or to not have the anxiety pop up or the stress pop up, but it it will, and it's knowing what to do with it or how to perceive it or how to respond to it, where you have the most power and where it can become something. It can almost dissolve into something that's really very manageable. Manageable, how you perceive it and how you react to it. Um, to go back to the parenting and the tantrums and the toddler 
stuff. I know I'm super niche on this episode. <laughs> I'm not sure everyone will be able to um, relate who's listening. Anyone who's a parent of a toddler will. When you take it into like the public arena, so you're in a supermarket or a restaurant. And to be honest, I have not had a whole lot of those experiences because of COVID, because he was born in the height of COVID and we didn't really go anywhere. We couldn't go to any restaurants. Then by the time we could, he was at an age where it just wasn't worth doing because it just would not be enjoyable for anybody that we're like, we tried it a few times. It was such a shit show. Been been there, been there. Why would we do this? We're just trying to prove something to ourselves. But I have been like, okay, come on, we're going to go to the supermarket. And of course, you know, I go to queue up to pay and he's like, no, I don't want to do that. And just, so we had one a while ago that was like, it feels in the moment like you're the only people to experience it. You feel as if everyone's looking at you. You feel everyone is judging how you're going to respond to it. So you're like, what starts off as, you know, something that you could maybe handle at home just grows arms and legs. What is going on in our minds in that moment that makes the social aspect of it so hard? And why do we believe, like, why do I keep needing the reassurance that I'm not the only one to have ever experienced this before? Why can't I believe that when it's happening? Um, These are great questions. Um, Number one, before I answer, I would say when you go out to the supermarket or restaurant, if you're prepared to do that, um, bringing distractions is 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 a useful tool you can use very practical like we used to bring puzzles and tupperware like just random things mm-hmm. little toys um uh the, you know kids at that age attention is a really powerful way to help regulate them so have your attentional switches armed and ready for them so when they start you know sliding into into misbehavior mode Oh, hey, do you want to play with this toy or or this or that? And and you know, keep it fresh so they don't know mm-hmm. what to expect. So you can engage your attention. Um, as to the social component, we're a social species. We're constantly taking stock of how those around us are perceiving us. Because um, if you want to adopt a, a kind of evolutionary thoughts on this, um, having good social standing was is imperative to our survival, right? So one person's not going to make it back in in the prehistoric days, so to speak. Um, you're much more likely to succeed is if, if you've got your clan working together. And so we do have this social element to human beings, to our species, and so we are sensitive. We're constantly trying to take stock if our standing is going up or down. So the fact that you care about what other people think about you um, is not unusual. Uh, to the contrary, it's a very human concern that we possess. But like so many things, when it comes to our psychology, it's it's ma- modifiable. It's it's man- manipulate manipulable. I don't know if that's a word, but uh, <laughs> we can change it, right? So so you you know if you fe- realize that you are over focusing on how other people. Are thinking about you, you know, recognizing, hey, look, there's nothing I can do about the situation. And I'm probably not going to see any of these people ever again. You know, that can dilute some of the kinds of social emotional concerns you might have, shame, embarrassment, um, that I'm guessing you experience in a public mm-hmm. context. Also recognizing that um, we're all privy to this kind of focusing illusion. We think people think and focus on us a lot more than they actually do. I remember when I was in high school, when like the bus used to drop me off and 
to get from where it dropped me off at school to my first class, I had to walk through this giant open area where all of the kids congregated. And remember when I started off in high school, I used to think, oh my God, everyone's looking at me and I would try to walk in this very cool, macho <laughs> way. And it was like a thousand eyes are on me. Well, guess what? Like a lot of people feel that way in public settings, but if you, you look at the research, most people aren't actually looking at you. They're they're thinking about other people looking at themselves or mm-hmm. on their phones and doing other things. And so we we over magnify in our minds the degree to which people are are weighing in on us. Now it is true, if you have a bullhorn of a child who is screaming their head off, you are likely to get glances. But but also remember, like a lot of those people are probably parents themselves that have been through this. And um I'm constantly amazed at the empathy that other people display for us. And so reminding yourself of that too, I think could be helpful. Yeah. So true. I mean, the last time it happened, also we had an experience on an airplane, which is just where you definitely don't want it to happen, where like you're literally like wringing sweat through your top being like, it's okay. We're okay. We're okay. And it's just, it's, it's almost funny how much it affects us. And I'm curious, like, did, these are all kind of hangovers from evolution where we're, you know, so concerned about our social standing. We're afraid to be kicked out of our tribe, even though we don't really live like that anymore. Do you think, do you foresee that we're going to get to a point if we keep evolving that what was once helpful that is now maladaptive will just work its way out of our system? Well, uh, that's a great question. I think we all, we are constantly evolving and, um, and we are evolving in, in lots of ways. There is a kind of cultural evolution that occurs. And you know, I, I actually find it pretty remarkable how, how well we've, in a certain sense, um, learned how to deal with these kinds of emotional outbursts. Um, you know, someone I know recently lost, um, lost a parent. And that is a, a hugely stress-provoking event for, for most individuals. And 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 they actually knew exactly how to cope with that situation. They knew how to cope with it because they were a member of a religious institution that gave them practices, rituals, ways of thinking about the death to help them negotiate this really traumatic period. And so if you think about that from a a, a kind of evolu- cultural evolutionary point of view, we recognize a long time ago that people have these difficulties and cultures, our culture began to identify specific tools and practices that we can give to people to help them. And once we identified practices that were useful, we institutionalized them so that everyone who's a member of our institution, when this happens, they don't have to think about it. We're just giving them the tools. Mm-hmm. And we have those for certain kinds of stressful events. And so that to me is a, is one sign of us evolving to manage the threats that we face, but I think we can we can supercharge um, or speed up the degree to which that kind of cultural evolution, when it comes to coping, takes place by doing a better job of relaying what we've learned about these tools with with folks out there. So that's why I'm such a fan of you in this podcast because um, I view you as playing a role in helping to do that. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Well, as I said, I am just the the person curious and asking the questions. And often what is a podcast for everyone else becomes like a, a one-on-one therapy session for me. Um, so I sh- you should be sending me an invoice now for this. Um, but Ethan, thank you so much. I feel like we've touched on really interesting insights here that don't often 
you don't often hear from. You know, you don't often take the parenting experience and apply the psychology or the neurocircuitry element to it, if that's even a word, neurocircuitry. Yeah, that's a good, that's better than my manipulable. <laughs> so you're winning the vocabulary you test on this um, podcast. Well, it's really interesting to like peel back, look, look under the hood of what's going on in these intense moments that are common to us all, I hope. Um, and I guess apply a little self-compassion and like so interesting what you said about the time duration of emotions uh like just knowing that alone helps you to just feel a little bit more equipped and I think hopefully people can, if they're interested can start to piece together a manual of sorts of their own um, and I hope that this conversation will have helped thank you so much for your expertise and your time and for answering my um very long-winded rambling questions I so appreciate it and I hope in the future you'll come back and we can have more conversations about different aspects of of the brain and how we can live better and feel better that would be wonderful well thank you so much for having me Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.